0: Hello and welcome to K-Pod, the podcast about Korean Americans in arts and culture. I'm Katherine Hong, a writer and editor, and I'm Juliana Stone, a photographer. Today, we're delighted to interview artist Byron Kim in his studio in Brooklyn. Byron's work has been exhibited in museums across the United States and abroad, and is part of the permanent collections of the National Gallery of Art, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Walker Art Museum, and the Whitney, among others. He works in an area sometimes referred to as the abstract sublime. Straddling abstraction and representation, his minimalist paintings are deeply personal, often connecting to his childhood, his children, or his innermost musings. He first made his mark with his piece, Synecdoche, which explores skin color and was exhibited as part of the landmark 1993 Whitney Biennial. Since 2001, he has been working on a series, which he calls Sunday Paintings, in which he records the appearance of the sky every week, along with a diary entry. We have so many questions for you, Byron. Thank you for having us.
1: When we first started researching your art career, I... Had expected to meet somebody who was a lot older because I feel that you almost had a, a success like really early on in your career.
2: You know? Uh huh. I I'm old. <laughs> I don't know. Did you expect to meet somebody that's like eighty five or yeah. something?
1: No, <laughs> I was thinking more like in their like early sixties.
2: I'm virtually in my early sixties. I mean, I'm f- nineteen sixty one means I'm f- I'm going to be fifty what fifty eight. So that's sixty basically. Maybe I look slightly younger just because my hair is black still.
0: You look younger. You look a lot younger, definitely. I know that you majored in English at Yale. When and how did you decide to become a painter?
2: Well, there's a long story and a short story. I decided to become a painter right after college, mainly because I wanted to be a poet and I had just discovered contemporary art my senior year of college and I thought that conceptualism in particular was kind of a different way of being a poet, like being a visual poet somehow, which was a very naive. Well, the naive part of it is that I, th- I th- actually thought that it would be easier and in some ways it's not easier, but it's just it's just different because the audience is different. It's a little less isolating being a visual artist than being a poet.
0: When you graduated, what were you thinking? Because I know you later went to Skohegan, but Yeah,
2: I just was thinking, oh, maybe I'll be a painter now. And so I need to go somewhere where I don't know anybody so I can just concentrate on trying to do this new-ish thing. So I moved, I thought I was moving to San Francisco, but found when I landed there that it was too expensive. So I ended up in Oakland, which is kind of like the Manhattan, Brooklyn thing. So I was in Oakland for a couple or a few years until I went to Skowhegan, which was crazy that I got into Skowhegan because I was, I made, you know, it was a couple or three years of trying, but pretty much making really bad work. So that was like, not even my graduate school equivalency period. Um, And so I, I don't know how I got in, but it, kind of changed my life to go to Skowhegan, which is a summer art program with uh, 65 really ambitious aspiring artists. And so I felt like I was out of my element. But on the other hand, I was also just surrounded by exactly who I needed to be surrounded by at that point. And that was when I really decided that I wanted to be an artist.
1: What happened afterwards?
2: Well... I fell in love that summer with the person that I'm still with, Lisa Siegel. And so I had gotten into grad school in St. Louis at Washington University. Um, so I went there, but it was, it was nothing it was nothing compared to Skowhegan. So I only lasted a semester and then I drove my station wagon to Brooklyn to be with Lisa.
0: And she's a painter She's well. a painter
2: also. Yeah. Well, she makes inst- so-called installation art now. She was a painter and is very much informed by painting.
1: So you were
0: there only for the summer?
2: Nine weeks.
0: Wow, amazing. So let's go back to the early years um, of your childhood. Um, We were curious about, you know, growing up in California, a little bit about your parents, we'd love to hear.
2: So I was born in La Jolla, California, and I, I always say I'm a native Californian, which is technically true. And that I grew up in California, but it's more honest to say, because I moved from La Jolla at somewhere around nine months old to Hartford and then Wallingford, Connecticut, my really formative years were in Connecticut. And then we moved back to La Jolla. So it's not completely false to say that I'm a native Californian or that or even that I grew up in California. I I do remember quite a bit about growing up in in Connecticut. I, I was born in 61 And so it was that typical kind of suburban, almost rural situation where I could run around, you know, any, you know, could leave home by myself when I was pretty little on my bike or on foot and go anywhere I wanted. And nobody was worried about my safety or anything like that. My parents are both doctors, so... They weren't home a lot, you know, during the day, so. Were um, you
1: an only child?
2: No, I spent time with my sister, too. She's three years younger.
0: What kind of parents were they? Were your parents pretty strict, traditional, no, academic, they, pushing?
2: They were kind of in between. They, I wouldn't call them strict, traditional the, like the stereotypical Korean American parents. First of all, they were really early Korean Americans. I think they both came here around 1950. Wow. When my mom landed in Texas somehow, and my dad in California. They had met in Seoul, but they re-met in, in New York City. My dad was came here to go to medical school at Columbia. At that time, they said they knew All the Koreans in in New York, in fact, uh, every Saturday they met with them on 125th Street at a Chinese restaurant and all the Koreans in New York attended around one one table. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I believe it. That early on?
2: You know, they're both physicians, so you would think on paper that that's like the perfect storm of being proto-tiger parents or something, they weren't really like that. Like, I think that my mom maybe thought that it would be good to become a doctor, but she never voiced it very strongly. And my dad, on the other hand, always was like a cheerleader for whatever I decided to do. That's
0: amazing because you are the firstborn grandson, mm-hmm. right? Male. And,
2: uh... yeah. And, you know, more amazing because there wasn't any indication that I would have any success at it. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know. Maybe they were thinking, oh, this will be over with eventually.
1: (laughs) Or
0: Well, there weren't very many Koreans in that part of Connecticut, I'm sure. Were there?
2: No. I grew up surrounded in Wallingford, Connecticut, and in La Jolla, California by well, no no Asians. I think that of.
0: contributes to that hot house environment of c- pushing your kids to compete when you're growing up with a bunch of other Koreans and no. they have kids. Oh, I interesting. Think maybe, yeah, uh, because um, they're there to pass
1: judgment and bear witness.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your I never successes. thought of it that way, but yeah, there were, you know. They, they didn't were, have
0: to compare you against, like, the white kids. No. Like, they naturally don't. No.
2: I think schoolwork was important. Like, they were. For instance, when we moved back to La Jolla, uh, my sister and I were placed in the local public school and um, apparently at a certain parent teacher conference, my parents were told that I was goofing off during class and I was, it was a fourth, fifth grade combination class. I don't know how many kids there were, but it seemed like there were 40 kids in the class and it was really boring and I was always messing around and my dad did not like that. It just seemed like a waste of time, I think, to him. So he put us both, I feel so sorry for my sister. Um, He put us both in private school after that. But I don't remember them really riding me hard about doing well in school. I think that was all pretty much self-motivated. The culture, the subculture of Korean American visual artists is so small that you probably can't generalize, but um, it's hard to generalize about their attitude towards their education maybe. On paper, it looks like I would be the typical, you know, my parents are both doctors. Like that sounds like it's going to be the...
1: Ivy League. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I think that they do have that exact kind of prejudice that you have to go to certain schools. Mm-hmm. Like my dad's the type of person who like if I, whatever school I'd gotten into, that all of a sudden would be like the best school in the world.
0: I also, I was really struck by the fact that your mom, which she's an obstetrician gynecologist, right?
2: Uh-huh. That
0: she was working as a doctor in America at that time, which is really rare for women. I mean, that's pretty Kind amazing. of
2: amazing. She's an amazing role model, period. Um, She was the real breadwinner because she worked such long hours. And that particular specialty, you know, you can see a lot of patients if you're good. And back then, you know, she had an office with just one other person there. And she did all her own lab work. And at one point, she had the San Diego County record for deliveries in a month. Wow. Which was, I don't know, 40-something or some crazy figure That's more
1: than one a day.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She... I wish that my kids could have seen, they're both alive and well, and they're both 91. I wish my kids could have seen them practicing their profession, but they're very close with them so they they can kind of infer what they were like as professionals.
1: I feel that when you were coming up, there probably weren't a lot of Korean artists in the fine art field there weren't any and in so fact could they all fit in one table in a chinese restaurant and, and like uh, what well, was it would just
2: be it would just be me and Peg Nam jun basically and he's not he wasn't really korean american mm-hmm. although in some ways he kind of was so i got to meet him so there are i mean like i think that there are korean diaspora artists who are more prominent than me now that are younger but such as Dohosa and Michael Ju and Haegyu Young. But for a while, I think maybe I was the only one. And I feel like I should be a little more careful about that because there's so many, there were so many Korean artists here. They just... They weren't getting a lot
1: of press. They weren't getting as much
2: press, which doesn't really matter. But the point I'm trying to make now is that of the Korean Americans who were born in, in the States there was no one else my age. It's almost like there literally wasn't anyone else. Not, not so much that I was the one getting the most attention that I don't, I never met anybody else. And it just so happened that my dad and his younger brother and Peg Nam went to high school together. Oh my gosh. So they knew, they knew each other and my uncle lived in New York. And so we would have dinner with him once in a while and I was just awestruck. Do you think
0: that their knowing him is partly why they were so open to you becoming an artist?
2: Wow, what an interesting question. I never they could considered see, that
0: um success and respect and they knew him and they thought he's an intellectual as well as yeah. a artist.
2: That's quite possible. Or maybe more generally that they have their tendency is more towards an interest in music. So what I'm trying to say is that, that, they, that they respected the arts. And I, I had never considered that, what you just said. And it seems plausible because they do respect artists in a, in a certain way. Um, I think other Korean Americans don't, it's not that they disrespect artists. Just, they just don't really think about yeah, culture in it in that way. Music is bigger
0: for them. Music usually. is bigger. Um, so, when you were still just starting out as a painter after Skowhegan, etc., mm-hmm. did you have any odd jobs?
2: Yeah. So, before Skowhegan, I was a. I did temp word processing in Oakland, and then when I got to New York, my friend got me a job at Skadden Arps as a as a paralegal on the night staff, and that. I had no idea, but that was like a hotbed for for it was there's kind of an art strange art scene happening there at night because that was the job, like that was the job to have if you Wanted to have some other creative career. Cool. So there were other painters and... Yeah, it wasn't... There were a number of visual artists, artists, but mostly writers like Wayne Kestenbaum worked there. Mostly theater people, like lots of theater people. How Um, many
0: years did you work for Scadden?
2: Just three because you were... Meant to be able to get off graveyard shift after three years, and then they changed that policy like right when I got to three years. So then I just quit because I am a morning person, and um, doing one graveyard shift a week was killing me. But it was great because you only really needed to do three shifts to be able to live comfortably in New York and and afford a a, a big studio. And you know, if you shared an apartment with somebody you could do it, on, and the shifts weren't even that long. It was a different kind of time in New York for artists, I think. It was a very rich time, but it was a very difficult time in the art world because that was um, right in the height or the beginning and then soon the height of the AIDS epidemic. So it it hit the art world really hard.
1: So I would love to talk about some of your work now. I was really surprised when I... Listen to this lecture that you had given at Worcester. Because I was only really familiar with your work visually. Then to hear that they were actually portraits was really, really interesting to me. Uh And uh, I loved hearing that story and the idea of um, visually how the execution of it starts someplace so much more personal and intimate. And then it ends up becoming these flat planes of color a lot of the times.
2: So... At some point in the early 90s, there was an evolution in my work from being a figurative painter actually toward something more conceptual, let's say. And for various reasons, I decided to make modernist looking paintings that had a different content. So that's how the skin paintings came about, paintings of people's skin color. and it's just kind of happenstance. A friend of mine at the time who was starting to curate just asked me when he saw the first little group of skin paintings, he thought it would be good for me to fill a whole wall with them. And I I probably wouldn't have done that if he hadn't suggested that. So who knows? Maybe I wouldn't be talking to you now if he hadn't suggested that. I don't feel that those works were so personal, although in a way they began they started out somewhat personal because I was, after all, I was looking at my friend's skin color and that's kind of an intimate act. And that's closer to the subject matter than what it became or what that work, which is called Synecdoche, um, came to be viewed as. But yeah, subsequently I did make work about my family and There are a couple paintings of my son Emmett that are portraits. There's, there's, there's a painting that I consider to be a portrait of the UN building. Um, They're all very, I think they're all very personal. Part of it is the lay person, the person who doesn't know that, who's not initiated about modern or contemporary art thinks when they look at severely abstract, like very abstract art, let's say very abstract painting, like abstract monochrome painting, they think that there's nothing. I imagine that they think there's nothing there. Like it's really hard to think about something being just about color or something like that. You know, I simply tried to make it about something very specific, mm-hmm. like my mom's skin color or uh, a shirt that, a shirt wore that I wore when okay. I was a kindergartner mm-hmm. or what Emmett, my son, looked like when he was 10 years old. Um,
1: I I feel like these stories or these touch points and where these paintings start really bring a certain kind of life to these paintings. Yeah, so... The stories and the personal touch.
2: Right, so the most common question I get after I talk about my work um, is you just gave us all these stories and it made me be able to appreciate your work so much better. But when I see your work in the museum or in the gallery... I don't have those stories. So what about that? It makes me motivated to make the work stand on its own in a way. But also if you know something about my work, you probably know that there's going there's something else going on. So you might be motivated to figure out what that something else is. Maybe not. And maybe it's just or
0: impossible to be motivated unless you're explaining it? Right. Maybe. They know. Oh, maybe. A so childhood. then there's oh just
2: God. there. Yeah, maybe it's just what it is. And maybe that's enough and maybe not. I kind of like that. I kind of like that it's not so clear that um, everyone doesn't get the same exact explanation or the same exact notion about meaning. So, you know, they're often very rich kind of very pregnant misunderstandings. Like, I don't know if this is quite a misunderstanding, but a work that was primarily meant to be about skin color suddenly becomes talked about mostly in terms of race, which that sort of sounds like a fine distinction, but it's kind of a huge distinction in my mind.
1: It's hugely different.
2: Yeah, it's just about, like I said, just taking a literal subject matter... You know, these different shades of color and, you know, attaching them to st- still something very literal, you know.
1: Did, was that something that was talked about when you first painted it, or has the interpretation changed with the politics? I think of it was day?
2: immediate because of the moment. Like, I've had a couple of these instances about 20 plus, 25 years apart of the, this kind of timing. Where so in the early '90s when that work came out, it basically made its big debut in the '93 Biennial, which was this Biennial, Whitney Biennial, which everybody still refers to, even though I mean, how many years ago is that? Right. Did they
0: recently do a show revisiting the Biennial because it was such a Landmark.
2: Well, the new museum did a show revisiting that year, but it was, you know, everybody refers to it as a, it was part, it was part of the postmodern era, but it was this multicultural aspect of it. That work kind of got assigned, assigned as a visual marker for that m- moment. I mean, I wasn't fighting it, but I, I didn't plan for that either. It would be dishonest for me to say that I didn't. I didn't imagine that as a possibility that people would talk a lot about race. How could I be so naive or or stubborn?
0: Well, a lot of the other sh- work in that show was explicitly about race, be- and because you were a part of that show, that's right. You, you know, you got looped into this whole. Yeah, but it
2: wasn't just the show; it was the times. And so that happened again recently because I made these paintings that were about the notion of a bruise. Um, And it's all from this particular poem by Carl Phillips, who's my favorite poet currently. And the the subject matter came about in my mind because of a particular description of a bruise in a poem. But it wasn't at all couched in violence or it just was noticing a bruise on the body of the lover of the protagonist in the poem, you know. And so I just, I just, it just fired that subject matter, the subject matter of a bruise with no context kind of fired my imagination. And I thought that was like a really perfect subject matter for me. So I don't know if like further back in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, this is perfect, you know, like this is a bruising time right now. But this was like a few years ago. So there was, there were a lot of things happening in the world, which there you know, inevitably there are things ha- like difficult things happening in the world, but then, you know, a couple years, this is always happening with work that I'm making, you know, a couple years go by while I'm trying to make the work better enough, you know, that I can show it. And then the show comes and it was about, you know, this notion, little notion in a poem. And then it, it, it opened, the show opens like right after the, the, 2016 inauguration, presidential inauguration. So everybody talked about it in a certain way, which I, you know, I didn't object to it, but it wasn't like, that wasn't exactly what I had in mind. So these things happen. I I can't remember what question I'm responding to now. Um, But um, yeah, these, these kind of, I don't really want to call them misinterpretations because everybody's interpretation is... Is certainly allowable.
1: So, your Sunday paintings,
0: paintings um, how long have you been doing?
2: Oh, since January 7th, 2001.
0: I, and you're still doing yeah. that practice of once a week?
2: Mm-hmm. The Usually every Sunday. Sometimes I'm You know, I forget or I'm super busy and then it usually happens on Monday or Tuesday.
1: So was that intentional when you started that you thought I'm going to just keep doing this? Yeah, it's sort
2: of like when I said that I got the idea of the bruise or the skin color, like it comes in a flash, the idea. Like that's my favorite part of being an artist is that moment. And then my second favorite part is finishing something. All the stuff in between is like, I'm exaggerating, but it's not that interesting to me. It's just, it's it's certainly not as interesting to me. You know, I don't remember the moment, you know, I was looking up, out my window at the sky and I was wondering if my mom was looking at the sky and like, do, do we see the same color? Do my mom and I see the same color of the sky when we're looking out the window, even though she's a few thousand miles away? I don't know. And so then I decided to paint a little painting of the sky. And then in order to mark that moment, I just write kind of a journal entry, literally on the surface of the painting. And so that is a really good example of what I realized not that long ago was what my work is all about, which is taking some very small idiosyncratic aspect of my life or some very personal matter and contrasting it with everything, with something very large. It turns out that that's what my work has always been like. Yeah, I've been making those paintings of the sky during the day, um, every Sunday or most Sundays for 19 years now and so that means i think that means there are over there are almost a thousand of them
1: um, i love how uh you've been able to incorporate some of your writing because you started out wanting to be a poet and now even though it's journalistic yeah. you get to hear um a bit of your thoughts, the personal, and what you said that somebody mentioned about looking at the work and it feels abstract, but we don't hear your voice explaining the story, but now we actually can read your voice with the work.
2: Yeah. So I've always wanted to be a writer. I think maybe I would have preferred that. And I never thought that this jotting down of thoughts on these paintings was writing. I never, I genuinely didn't see this. Here's another example of this kind of misreading in a way, literally. Like I, I just didn't think of it as writing because I find writing so hard and that kind of writing is so easy. So maybe it's like this Korean American work ethic thing. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't think of it as hard enough. But then like uh, lately, because I've made so many of them and they've gone back so many years. I've had the opportunity to exhibit a large number of them. And then people start talking about them that way. Like people that I admire who, you know, I still don't think that it's writing, but the strange thing is that it's encouraged me to start writing again. And because people have been saying what ex- exactly what you just said, I realized, oh, maybe that can be writing And so that's the way that I've been writing because I don't have any aspirations to be a poet.
0: Do you keep a record of them so you can easily refer back to what you were thinking one day, another day? Do you look through them before you start the next one sometimes?
2: No, I don't do that. But there's there's a pretty good record of them now because of a very funny reason. A big part of my life that I haven't talked about yet is teaching. So I've taught for the past, I don't know, 25 years, the place that I've taught most consistently is at Yale. And um, one day I'm leaving, I'm just like entering an empty elevator. And then one person comes in right as the door shuts and it's this young woman and she goes, Are, you're Byron Kim, right? And I and I go, uh, yeah. And it's like this nightmare situation for me. Like, ah, that's the exact person that I don't want to be talking to, like... And I'm stuck in an elevator with them. And she goes, I knew that I would that I would get to meet you here, because she knew that I was teaching there. So she's this great young Korean artist named Jung Che, who goes by Che Da That's her artist name. And long story short, when she came to New York, she convinced me that I needed a good archive of my work. And I I just hate that, you know, I don't have any assistance and I, I really can't work with anybody else in the room. And that's kind of like how my mom was in her practice. I just, it seems like it's kind of genetic. And um, I just said, no, I, you know, I, you're right, but I can't, I just, I don't know how that would work. I don't know how she knew this, but she said, your situation is, she basically said, she conveyed that your situation is dire, you know it's going to be really bad for your well, with this for your kind of legacy work, it seems to
0: cry out for good documentation well, that I
2: particular am- series, but she was talking about all my work, and she was just saying, "I know that you don't have good records, and it's going to be a nightmare for people who want to work with your work after you're gone, and especially your children and I was like, oh. You are stressing me out. (laughs) And so she's been working on it for almost three years, I think. And she's done an amazing job. Like I said, okay, we're going to do this, but you're going to work for me one day a week and I never, I don't want to see you at all. (laughs) She goes, okay.
0: Well, I I read another interview with you where you said something about how you don't produce that much work and that's just the way you are. You're a low production artist and you only show, you know, every few years. Is that right?
2: Yes. Well, it's kind of right. I don't make tons of work but then like I'll go into the spasm of making you know I had this show at the museum in San Diego and I made these it was all about this artist named Maria Martinez Um, and I made these little black paintings they're all pretty small but I, I must have made about 70 or 80 of them really in a short period of time but then yeah Juliana's right I make 52 paintings a year even when I'm not working that much <laughs> I've realized for a a while now that I, I need ideas to gestate. And then it takes a while for me to go from there to make something that I feel confident and happy with. My former dealer said, I've never worked with somebody who gets so much out of so little work, which I I can't tell if that was supposed to be a compliment or not.
1: I read this quote on uh, one of the reviews for your Sunday paintings, Mm -hmm. and uh, it said it's like a very analog status update.
2: (laughs) That's weird—an analog version of that.
1: Yes, of a status update, as in like here's a little bit of. Yeah, like super slow,
2: like once a week. It's exactly that. It's a status update. I didn't know what a status update I mean, I kinda do know what a status update is, but like I don't that's not a term that I that's that much in my consciousness. And so you've just explained it. And now that I've absorbed it, I realize that's totally right. Those are all weekly status updates. And they started in two thousand early two thousand and one, so they probably preceded status updates, I'm yeah. guessing. <laughs>
0: Definitely. And
2: so like, you know, I'll keep updating my status until I literally can't do it anymore. I used to say until I die, but I imagine there might be this period which I hope is merciful, mercifully brief <laughs> that I'm that I can't do it anymore.
0: One last question I have is about your kids. Are any of them interested in art and did you raise them looking at a lot of art, talking about art all the time?
2: Yeah, we raised them I don't know about talking about art, but we raised them looking at a lot of art and for that reason they don't love looking at art. I don't want to put it to extreme a position because I think all three of them really appreciate art. I think only the third one is in danger of possibly becoming an artist, but she has no, she, there's nothing that indicates that she will become an artist. We, we always discouraged them from Um, Going into the arts. Why? Because I think it's just our particular way of parenting. We're both artists. It's a difficult life. And we both know that if somebody really wants to be an artist, you can discourage them. As it's the best thing to do is discourage them because they're going to become an artist anyway. The worst thing is to encourage them and then have them become artists and then they're not really that determined to become artists. I think that's a bad situation. So make it really hard to become an artist because the people who have that fatal disease will succumb to it. There's no
1: alternative.
0: Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today.
1: K-Pod is a production of KoreanAmericanStory.org. Our producer is Kevin Park, our editor is AJ Valente, and our executive producer is H.J. Lee. You can email us with comments and suggestions at kpod at org. You can see my portraits of all our podcast guests at org. You can follow me on Instagram at juliana underscore zone. For news and updates on KPOD. follow Korean American Story on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.